So before we get to the 10 days, we need to go through the backstory that builds up to the last days. It was first century CE in Jerusalem when Jesus was killed, sometime around the year AD 26 to 30. Some Roman soldiers had executed Jesus on a cross, just like they had already executed thousands of people in the area. But this particular execution would send shockwaves through the world for centuries. See, crucifixion was common. Everyday criminals, traitors, notably anybody that dared to rebel against the empire or start an uprising would be crucified. It had happened hundreds of times throughout all the Roman Empire where there was this pretty predictable pattern where a group of people with nationalistic pride was led by this charismatic leader. They would go watch Braveheart. They would get excited. They would attack the local Romans at their outposts. And then Rome would send in reinforcements, demolish the uprising, kill the leader, and put it to rest. It was like one of those money games in college football where the D2 team plays Alabama and they score first and they get really excited and then reality sets in. This is Rome. But this execution, this was like a mutation in the evolution of government coups. At first they didn't even think this guy was enough of a threat to even bother killing. And when they did kill him, it was like they couldn't kill him. His movement just got bigger. And the more they killed his followers, the more his movement grew because this was an entirely different approach to throwing a revolution. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright described this chain of events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion as the perfect storm of conditions. So that, that term, perfect storm, it was popularized in a movie. And in the movie, there's this little ship called the Andrea Gale that found itself off the coast of Massachusetts in exactly the center of three converging storms. There was this large low-pressure disturbance coming in from the west from Canada that was running into a high-pressure system off of the Atlantic, which in and of itself, those two are already going to make for a fierce storm. But right as the two converged, they were struck from the southeast by Hurricane Grace. It was right in the middle of all these three that this little fishing boat was obliterated. And it was in a similar situation that Jesus was executed. See, there were three religious political storms that were all converging on each other in Jerusalem that week. And Jerusalem was maybe the perfect place for the perfect storm. It was a crossroads for world trade. This was a hotly contested piece of land where trade routes converged from Africa and Europe and the Far East all in one place. So the first system in this storm it was a large low-pressure system from the West. It was Rome. See, the Roman Empire, it had been growing and increasing in power for a few hundred years now, but up until just 30 years before Jesus, Rome had been a republic. It had a complex government, had all kinds of checks and balances that resisted tyranny. And then Julius Caesar, he brings his army into Rome. He becomes the dictator for life. He gets assassinated at Tu Brute. His son Octavian fights in the Roman Civil War. He comes out the victor. He declares his deceased father Julius divine, and he calls himself son of the divine son of God now it was not uncommon in the ancient world to call your rulers divine gods so everybody in the Roman Empire knew that if you asked who the son of God was of course it's Octavian Augustus who also gave himself the title Pontifex Maximus the chief priest so they put out propaganda that told the story of Rome as like a long narrative reaching its climax in this golden age. And the birth of this child, Octavian, was ushering in the Novus Ordus Seclorum, a new order of the ages. It's a phrase which, by the way, is on the U.S. dollar bill. Because they thought that winning battles creates peace and new order. So they couldn't tweet, and they had to do their propaganda, so they carved this message in stone around the empire. Good news, the Son of God has become king of the world. But then Octavian died, like people do. And in AD 14, his adopted son, Tiberius, became the new emperor. 
Now it was around that time that finally Rome had stabilized and they were in sort of the golden years of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, where the dust had settled and the rebellions and the wars had calmed and development and rebuilding were underway and the transition of power went pretty smoothly to Tiberius. But the main goal at this time was to keep the peace. It was to suppress any uprisings, nip it as soon as you smelled trouble. And so this is where crucifixion became popularized. It was a statement, don't mess with Rome. Now, Jerusalem, it was a key stronghold for trade for Rome, so keeping this area stable was huge. They did it by placing a prefect there, like a governor, uh, a governor, Pontius Pilate. So if you were a governor or a prefect, your job was to be loyal to the, to the Roman Empire, to Caesar, to collect taxes, to kill any unrest. So if you found yourself a loyal patriotic Roman and you're a, you're a soldier or a governor keeping peace in another region, there's a good chance you're going to think, hey, we are the bearers of peace and prosperity. Why would all of you savages out here not want to be blessed by our civilized and wealthy nation? Because God has obviously blessed Rome, hashtag blessed. Look at our wealth. But there was this one nation that refused this idea that God had blessed Rome, Israel. Jerusalem was their city, and Rome had taken it and defiled it. And, and this was the high-pressure system that came in from the east. If the Romans had pride, they had met their match in pride. The Jews, these guys, were proud. Their history went even further back. They had written their story down, and they had taught it to their kids in schools, and they memorized it in their book of Holy Scriptures, which was essentially just a story of how God chose their nation to bring peace and order to the world. So they had like way more traditions than any college football team or any, any other nation. They had a history and a narrative and ancient heroes and stories and religious rites. Their story went something like this, that you know, all the other nations of the world were polytheistic. They had multiple gods. Th theirs was just this mysterious divine source of presence behind it all. And they, they didn't even say his name, but it, was, it would have been pronounced something like Yahweh as they had written it down. And, and this God had made a covenant with Abraham, their forefather, over a thousand years before that they would be the ones to bring peace and prosperity to the earth. But they kept getting dumped on. So Egypt, right? The Jews, they ended up in slavery in Egypt, making bricks for this giant global empire. Somehow, this God, this Yahweh that they worship, uh, allows them or makes them work and pay into an unjust system that's oppressing people to stay in power. So they, they finally say no more to Egypt, and they have this huge walkout. They leave it. It's the Exodus. They win this huge victory over Pharaoh, and it becomes their national anthem of sorts. It's the Exodus story where they leave an oppressive empire. They stand up, and they say, no more propping you up, and they leave, and they go back to their promised land, which they believed God had given to them. They conquer the land of Israel, and they take it for their own, and they have their own golden years. But then they forget. It's like a century or two after they're in their own promised land, being their own bosses, that they start to act like the other nations. They build this giant temple complex, and it's patterned after the ones that they had been exposed to in Egypt. And then they start using slave labor to do it, just like Egypt, because people forget, don't they? And all along, there were these Jewish prophets within their own nation, within the nation of Israel, who were like standing up. They were criticizing loudly. No, no, no. God doesn't want us to have a king like the other nations. God doesn't want us to have this giant military. God doesn't need a house or a temple. He doesn't want us to look like them. But man, when you're in charge, that seduction to power 
it's pretty powerful, right? So the kings of Israel, they would sort of brush over these little things. And like before you know it, they look like all the other nations. They're playing this power game, right? And they win some. They have their playoff year, but they mostly get demolished. And in 722, it's the Assyrians, 722 B.C. And then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians conquer the Assyrians. And then in 538 B.C., 50 years later, King Cyrus of Persia conquers the Babylonians, lets the Jews go home. And they're so excited because they get to rebuild this temple that's been destroyed. They think things are going to go really well, and they're going to have this great golden age that lasts forever. But then 332 B.C., Alexander the Great conquers. And not only does he conquer, he divides it into three parts, Hellenizes the area, and makes you live and do things with uh, via the, the Greek culture. And so a good Jew despises Hellenization because a good Jew loves their story. So the frustration of being forced to do it the other way of, of other nations while you believe in your story, it's really starting to heat up and build pressure. So there start to be revolts against the Greeks. 164 BC, they finally have a successful revolt. Judas Maccabeus, these, uh, the, the nation gets behind them. He drives out the Seleucids. For 80 years, there's a Jewish state once again, but they couldn't stop Rome. See, this was the biggest superpower the world had ever seen. So in 63 BC, Rome besieges the city, takes it over, and let's be real, this is no contest. The, the Roman Empire was the largest superpower that the world had ever seen. So yet again, they find themselves reluctantly capitulating to this giant global empire. And now, you have taxes upon taxes upon taxes that are being levied forcefully by people that you despise, and you're forced to trade in a money that says Tiberius is the son of the divine God. And if a Roman soldier stops you on the street and says, hey, carry my bags, you're forced to stop what you're doing and change your day and carry them. And you, you can go to the temple and worship your God, but only when the Romans say so and only with their approval because they're watching from their towers above. And so now, right here at the crux of trade in this hotly contested piece of land where the tensions between Jerusalem were higher than ever with Rome, the Israelites, this proud group of people, streamed into the city for their annual holiday, the Passover. There may be two million or more people all crowding into the city to visit the temple. They were going to make sacrifices at their temple to their God, Yahweh, and to celebrate. Now, if you're familiar with the Passover... It was the Jewish holiday where they celebrated national independence from Egypt. So with every oppressive government along the way, that there had been year after year of them sitting at dinner tables, drinking wine, celebrating the Passover, saying next year in Jerusalem, next year we're going to get them, boys. Next year we're going to be free. We're going to have a nation of our own. God's going to destroy those oppressors and we'll be free at last. So now imagine you're in Jerusalem at the temple, right in the middle of the big Passover party. You, you believe that there is a divine God who makes his presence known here at this temple. And there would be Roman soldiers walking atop the temple who believed in different gods. And they had swords, and they were looking down on the crowds of thousands of people. There were pepped-up Jews chanting nationalistic Hebrew songs about the day they'll be liberated from an oppressive government. There was this very well-grounded narrative that said one day God's going to establish a throne right here forever in Jerusalem and we're going to be on top, right? So translation, you're a soldier, they want you dead, and they're just waiting for the right year for their Cinderella story to come true. Now, the Jews. The Jews were 
a mess. They had all kinds of different ideas of loyalties and dreams. There, there were made, mainly three different major political parties that kept fighting with each other. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And I'm not sure who had a donkey or an elephant or whatever, but then you had some guys who were extreme sort of on both ends. You had zealots who were so fed up with the occupation that they led revolts and they were squashed. And then you had these other guys who were Herodians, which meant they were like, no, this occupation, I mean, like, we're not going to win this fight. And hey, this isn't so bad. Look at the economy. And so they're all fighting all along the spectrum and debating ad nauseum. You can imagine what their news feeds would have looked like. So Rome has the power. Israel has this intensity and this passion. And it was into all of this that Hurricane Grace came rolling in. It, it looked like a caravan of people with a leader on a donkey that comes in from the east and it sends the city into an uproar. So Jesus, a little backstory on him. He grew up north of Jerusalem, about 80 miles in a town called Nazareth. And we get this tiny little description of his childhood. He was, he was a good Jew. He knew the Old Testament story in the Bible well. He was well-educated, very bright from an early age, it seems. But for some reason, he didn't follow the path to become one of the elite Jewish teachers or religious or political leaders. He was lower class. Yeah, at one point, he was a builder like a stonemason, and we actually think that he and or his father Joseph would have literally helped build the Roman Empire working at a project near Nazareth in a, or building a city called Autocratoris, which was in honor of Octavian. So can you imagine the fellow groaning of your fellow Jews and the frustration of your daily sustenance coming from you helping grow this thing that you despise and you're being oppressed by? Now, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, goes out into the desert a few miles from Jerusalem, and he's attracting thousands of people, uh, not unlike some of the other resistance leaders had done in their day. They're getting these big crowds together, but he was fundamentally different. He was maybe like a hermit guy. He was possibly connected to the Essenes. He was completely pro-Jewish, and he believed that their country was supposed to be a light to the world, but his message... It was backwards from all of the zealots who had rebelled so far. John the Baptist, JB, he, he basically said, look, the reason why we're still being conquered in this whole promised land, light of the world, chosen nation thing isn't happening is because of our sin. It's because of our own wickedness. It's because we're doing the same thing that every other nation is doing. We're trying to take the world by force, by our wealth, by our power. And my building is bigger and nicer than your building. This, this is never going to amount to justice and world peace. And so John gathered quite a crew of people that were following him out into the desert who wanted to hear this fresh message. So the only way that we would show the world a better way to do politics is to start inside by changing our fundamental mindset, John would preach. Instead of imposing our will on others, we need to change ourselves. And this message resonated that all change starts inside. The line of evil doesn't run between us and them, but it runs right down the middle of every one of us. So these people that hear this message, they, they start getting baptized just as a way of saying, I will be the change that I want to see in the world. I want to be clean and I want to live better. And they're buying in. And Jesus is actually one of these. Now, Jesus was a great Jew. He was fed up with the Roman occupation and wanting like every Jew for their nation to have its day. He comes all the way down from Nazareth, like 70 miles to see the show, and he gets baptized by his cousin. 
and then there's these political leaders that are out there seeing the show too and John knows that they're not interested in changing they're they're like the elite who have come out just to watch just to see what's going on like to supervise he knows they have too much power and so he's like look you're a bunch of snakes and he goes all up on them and he starts preaching at them and starts yelling if you really want to change show it share your wealth with people quit extorting people now at some point, John mentions that Herod the Tetrarch, who's this Roman puppet king in charge of the area, probably shouldn't have stolen his brother's wife. That was wrong. And so these Jewish elites who had come out to hear him, they, they hear this, what John says about Herod, and they go tattletale on him to Herod. They're, they're like buddying up with the occupation. Now, meanwhile, Jesus has gone into the desert alone, and he's like having this full up, facing his inner demons type of experience. He's been baptized, and this message is really setting in. All change starts here. It's within. Not by conquering others, but by conquering yourself and your own evil. Introspection. Change from within. And so his followers later told this cool story about him facing the devil and like a match off in the desert and Jesus overcomes. And then he's like ready for his mission. Now at this point, he comes out of the desert. He finds out that his cousin, John the Baptist, JB, this, the tattletales get him thrown in prison. And so like Jesus knows he's their only hope and he's their only way forward. And in their own people, like their own Jewish religious people are stomping out the only hope that they have for themselves, the possibility for the right kind of change to start. And, and I don't know Jesus' emotions, but it's like he gets his game face on. Like, this is the moment. And the story goes that, that like he starts his ministry when he finds out John has been thrown into prison. He can no longer be some passive stonemason and watch all this go down. This has gotten personal, and he knows that like of all people, he has the education, the skill, the intelligence, and the love for the common man, and it's this love that won't allow him to be still anymore. He sees the injustice of all these great people around them who are working their tails off, building an empire, being ruled by an empire within an empire, and just being squashed by the weight of it all. The tax rates were enormous, and the average guy was not thriving. And the futility of his so-called Hebrew leaders pretentiously hoping that they'll topple Rome one day and knowing that if they did, they'd just, just be as evil it's like his frustration with a system combines with his anger of what's been personally done and his heart of love for good people all around him who are getting screwed by the system that's just making others richer. So he starts, Jesus starts preaching in synagogues. They're Hebrew churches, Jewish churches, and because we don't need to change the Romans. We need to change ourselves. It starts here. The next step after the desert experience is to call the family to the desert with you, to invite your fellow neighbors right next to you to change. So this is what Jesus does. He, he moves to Capernaum. There's a little village on the Sea uh, of Galilee on the shore there, and he starts preaching there, and he starts healing people and feeding people without going through the usual hoops or red tape, basically showing that you don't need these power systems to provide for you like you thought. 
And then people follow him, and he picks 12 guys to be uh, Talmudim, disciples, who they normally didn't get called like this. They normally go through basically like an application process and beg some elite prominent teacher to be disciples. But Jesus is upside down, right? He calls them ordinary people, and, and the diversity among them is really cool. He calls guys from about 11 to 12 years old up to probably 20 or 21. He's got a fisherman, a tax collector, He's got uh, who is a Roman agent. He's got a zealot who wanted to kill Roman agents. See what he's doing? He, he's creating this little microcosm of people who show the world peace by dying to themselves. And then he takes his disciples to like the scariest places, to enemy territories. And instead of killing enemies, they feed them and heal them, and reunite them with family, and they keep telling everyone this message, the kingdom of God is here. This nation we've all been waiting for, where we rule, where our nation is a light to the world, it's here. It's already here. And he says things like, you'll only see this if you have eyes to see. It's not flashy or obvious, because no one is taking over by force. This is grassroots. It grows from the ground up, not from the top down. This this is based on voluntary love rather than involuntary submission. But this is the very thing that our nation needs to become great again. So this movement picks up steam. And he's like, look, you 12, go be ambassadors for this nation, for this kingdom. You have your own desert experience like I did, and then go love and put faith in other people like I did. So they do. They amass thousands of followers at times, and they don't get it, but they're doing it. They're starting to, and most people are curious. They want. They come out, and they want to see magic tricks from Jesus, but a lot of folks start to buy into this upside-down kingdom underneath an empire under the empire. Now, As this movement grows, Jesus realizes he's becoming a spectacle. He knows that there's opposition coming. Like this this thing has gotten too big. There's too many people in the crowds and the elites who killed his cousin won't be ignoring this much longer. Now he's relatively insulated because he's way up in Galilee. He's 50 to 80 miles away. But he knows though that this message of love and introspection and upside down politics is going to, if it's going to take root, it has to infiltrate the heart of his entire Hebrew nation of people, not just the people in his town. At some point, before this political message could infect Rome and the rest of the world, the movement has to infect Jerusalem. Because that's the way it grows, right? At some point, something huge clicks with Jesus. He has to die. Not like he probably will. He has to. Not because God is angry and needs some sacrifice to absorb his issues, as you may have been told. But he's going to have to expose a system that has devolved into this giant political, like Rob Bell says, a hairball, and cut it out, and it's going to get him killed. Love like that is hard because it doesn't fight and it doesn't run away. Now, in the Exodus, Israel had refused, as they should have, to prop up Egypt's little empire. This is the fleeing part. And in all the other occupying nations, Assyria, Babylon, Israel had fought back and lost. So they got the two states of the amygdala down pretty well. They tried fighting and fleeing. But Jesus keeps talking about this third way to treat people. 
If they're mistreating you, stand up to them, don't run, look them in the eye, turn the other cheek, tell them you love them, and show them you're a human too, and you refuse to play the back and forth power game. Now, when you do this to an entire religious establishment, you're going to end up dead. There was this famous prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Now, a prophecy wasn't a crystal ball prediction of the future, okay? It personified the nation of Israel as a suffering servant. A, a prophecy would have been like a message that would have stung. It would have been a message that people needed to hear. It was this word for the nation. And it personified Israel as the suffering servant that was going to heal the world if it suffered properly. It said, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, Israel, and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, and he did not open his mouth, even though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This was the pattern that the nation of Israel was supposed to be for the world, that the nation of Israel would somehow absorb the anger of the rest of the world without fighting back and still stand. And Jesus knew. Forgiving and fighting and, and not fighting back and nonviolence, what generally happens is that the onlookers, the innocent bystanders that see it go down, they cannot deny the truth. And often, more often than not, they will change when they see how you lived this third way with all of this boldness and brass and belief that what you believed in mattered more to you than your own life. This this reminds me of Martin Luther King, and I can't help but think, had he not taken his message all the way to the point of dying for his cause by assassination, would the rest of America continue to change and be inspired by his story in quite the same way that it has over the last 50 years? So there's there's this, and then another angle. Imagine yourself in a dominance hierarchy. See, like normally the dominance hierarchies of the world, they, they make the subordinates pay for stuff. So like when you get a boss in a room with a meeting, there's something that has to be fixed, addressed, paid for, corrected. The boss gets the opportunity to brush aside their own shortcomings and hold the other people accountable. And whether you have a great boss or a totally evil boss, either way, the boss has the power. And over time, whenever the boss starts to go into scarcity mode and gets stressed, it becomes easy to, to use that luxury of passing on your accountability or your, your responsibilities to other people. They have the luxury of saying to somebody else, you fix the problem. And the person on top in a dominance hierarchy always will make sure that they survive first and gradually press responsibility and weight on those below them without even realizing it. And when systems evolve like this and they become more efficient, it allows accusers or manipulators to sometimes rise to the top, those who make other people the scapegoat for their own shortcomings. And this is how a, do a dominance hierarchy has to operate to survive. The person at the top can't stay healthy and empower if they own all of the shortcomings of the system, so they pass it on to those beneath them. And this creates inequality over time. And so this is why dominance hierarchies continue to evolve in such a way that accusers can rise to the top. And it's why at the top of the political system that we currently live in, what do we find? Accusers. So in an upside-down, love-based economy, 
that Jesus saw Israel being called to be. He knew that it, that it needed a leader that didn't operate from a position of power, shoving responsibility onto his underlings, but one who operated from a position of service who held himself responsible for it all. That is a crushing weight for a servant leader in this atmosphere. Because when you flip a hierarchy into a lowerarchy, the weight of it will crush you. And it clicks with Jesus. He's going to have to personify the suffering servant that Israel was described at, as in Isaiah 53. He's going to have to die. The, the only type of real Messiah that there could be that would initiate lasting change for the world is the one that's ultimately going to be killed for his cause. Because that's what people in power will do when you start to, by your love and service for your enemies, shine the light on injustice that has managed to grow in their darkness. If a nation is going to have a, to change the world through exposing itself to dark forces, risking its own life, insisting on nonviolence, then that nation's Messiah or leader is going to have to be the embodiment of that. The sheep led to the slaughter. So this prophecy wasn't just about Israel. It was about Israel's Messiah. Now, I don't know when this reality clicked with Jesus, but I do know that Passover was coming and he knew it. All the Jewish elite were going to be in one place. They were going to be feasting away while their own country propped them up. So squabbling and fighting with each other at the temple establishment for the scraps of power that were tossed to them by Rome and continuing to oppress their own people the way that Rome had oppressed them. They were singing songs about liberation and plotting the day that they would get more power. Not just power over Israel, but like when they get to rule the world. And Jesus knew that he had to go into this place and speak to his family. Jesus knew that this was a suicide mission because just like he had slayed the devil inside of him in the desert, now it was time to call his nation to do the same thing at a national level. The line between good and evil doesn't run between us and Rome, but right down the middle of us. It was time to expose the devil within and to stand up to the establishment of Jerusalem at the temple and say no more. And this was his moment, and he said yes.